Desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 12, Gawk. This week's featured story is from Diane Biliak, an author, a disability rights advocate, and a self-described poet who went off the rails. Her book, a memoir, has a long title. It's called Nothing Special, The Mostly True, Sometimes Funny, Tales of Two Sisters. This long title took an unusual and interesting path to publication. I'll let Diane explain. So tell me how this process of putting this book together started for you. So um, after my father died in 2007, I joined a manuscript writing group and I said, I want to write about some of these things. So I put together a series of stories and kind of had 200 very loose meandering pages of thoughts and little anecdotes, right? It was all over the map. Unfortunately, that's the way I write. Once that was done, a time passed and I had a friend who was a director and I said, hey, maybe you want to look at these, you know, look at this and see if there's anything there. Maybe it could be a play. So he looked at it. We worked on it for a couple of years. And then we started to make, we made them into monologues. So the father story was one monologue and the sister story was another. I spoke them in two. I decided to take an, to audit a playwriting class, which I have no experience in. And then those monologues were turned into pieces that we started to, you know, send them out to festivals. So it got accepted. So I was in the festival one year, the United Solo Fest in New York. And then the second year I I put in the the sister play. So I did the father one first and then the sister one and it did well. I mean, it's a whole month festival. So, you know, we get a space to use and I had to hire an actor and a director and um, work in this world that I had never worked in. So then from there, I, I said, well, you know, I'm going to send this to Wesleyan university press because I knew that her, um, child had down syndrome somebody told me that as the editor there and so I said well I'll just send this to her and um see what she thinks and she's like well yeah let me take it so this is now we're up to like 2014 or so so and so then she said yeah I think we could maybe work on this um so then all the stuff that I'd written originally and all the stuff through the play oh and then I was in this kind of comedy troupe of middle-aged women and we would go all around the Boston area and I'd read the essays through that. So then they were, they, so I'd work on them as stories. And then finally, um, after about four years of working with uh, the editor and other people, it became a book. The hardest part was having it gone through so many renditions. Yes. It was so difficult to structure the book. So around 2018, 2019, I guess, you know, I had all these essays and I had some that weren't even written yet that are in the actual book. So the, the whole last, um, so it's in four parts. So the fourth part of the book is kind of the newer stuff. That's the, that was one of the other questions I was going to ask you is that there were four parts and then there's also this really lovely epilogue and, yeah. um, 
I wondered how, why it was structured that way or how you chose to break it up. But now that makes more sense to me that you were working from a performance art standpoint with monologue sort of scripting. Um, yeah, I don't know any authors who have done it that way. <laughs> no, so it started off wide and then it narrowed into a river and then it opened again into the ocean and then it narrowed again. It just kept going back and forth like that. So I'm a huge fan of short story. That's uh -huh. that's just something I gravitate towards. I like, and I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much because it did feel like vignettes. It felt like mm -hmm. very complete. They could have stood alone, a lot of them. Right. Um, and so, but again, that now that makes more sense to me that that was your process. It's fascinating that it started off as kind of performance art. Yeah. It took a, also took a very long time because emotionally, um, you know, the stuff about my father was very raw and, and, uh, much more angry. And then the stuff about my sister, um, you know, how much do I want to tell? Is it okay to, how much of her story am I allowed to tell, um, and still honor who she is and not seem like I'm making fun of her, you know, so working out how, how much humor can you use without it turning into perceived mocking uh I noticed during the plays that see the plays gave me this opportunity to see how an audience would respond what are they going to laugh at what are they so it helped me hone all these skills that I didn't have I wasn't a I wasn't an essay writer I wasn't a creative nonfiction writer I had been a poet who just kind of went off of the rails basically <laughs> yeah as you were putting it together into a book who was the audience you most wanted to direct it towards this is probably common for a lot of writers, but you really, a lot of times it's like, no one, why am I writing this? What am I thinking? I, I'm a nobody, no one's gonna read this. And why, why are they gonna care about this story? That's the first thing that typically recycles. And then the second thing would be my fellow siblings, of course, because I knew there were other people out there who experienced similar situations that, that, that I did. And I'd hoped to reach that audience. I'd, I'd hoped to reach parents who were raising maybe uh, several children or, and maybe they didn't think about that sort of favoritism of the, what in the nineties was called the special needs child, right? Um, and then the other child would be like, well, what, what about me? You know, um, and where the gift that you have to offer the family or the gift that you have to the world would be, well, I'm, so-called normal therefore I've already got everything going for me like I don't need anything else and that's not true either and then of course the biggest hope is that you reach a larger audience you know of people who understand if you just want to read a, a, a book that they enjoy yeah well so help me set up the story that we chose for the podcast for that's called gawk um, explain a little bit about where that where that story originated from and how you tell that story I believe that gawk uh, is um, a slice of what it's like to be different. And for us, we grew up in a town where people knew us. So we didn't deal with a lot of people seeing us as different, just part of the landscape. Then we go outside of that world, this little town of like eight to 10,000 people and experience people kind of looking at my sister or looking at us and that fishbowl kind of feeling of, that's when it's like, oh, we're different. We're, people are noticing us. And it, that's the um, chapter that 
goes into a little bit more about what, what Down syndrome is and, you know, how my mother reacted and how, how we all kind of began to learn more about it. Like what it, what it means to, to outsiders and how we were insulated. Yeah. Do you think that that has improved in the, in the decades that, that you have been experiencing that in public? Sure. I mean, with TV shows and um, movies that, that people are more exposed now and within education systems, mainstreaming or inclusion. Um, so definitely, yes. Gawk. For my parents, learning my sister had Down syndrome in 1969 must have been momentous. I trust they felt a sense of loss for the future they'd assumed she'd have, as well as immense fear that they'd lose her for good, given the doctor's terrifyingly short projections for Christine's life expectancy. To me, it was more earth-shattering when, just a few months after her diagnosis, we watched the first human landing on the moon. We looked on in awe as Neil Armstrong, dressed in a puffy white suit, walked with near weightless buoyancy. My family life, as far as I knew, was the same as it had always been. My sister's so-called differences, the traits the outside world used to set her apart, were simply part of who she was. Chris was still Chris, my best competitor and my best friend. I didn't hear the phrase Down syndrome for another three years when I was seven, and a boy in the neighborhood told me my sister had it. I wondered what it was and when it happened. Perhaps she got it when the two of us were nursing bad haircuts and lying in the way back of the station wagon while our mom drove to her bowling league. Perhaps the moon was full and we were following it with our eyes. Maybe we were wearing matching swimsuits and waiting on the pool steps during that long hour after lunch. Or we'd just had a fight over the front seat or thrown a punch because the radio station was changed before a favorite song ended. Perhaps the song was by Wings, John Denver, or The Carpenters. I don't remember if I'd known something was altered in Christine but whatever it was, hadn't had a name. A name changes things. I knew people had labels to describe them. Female, priest, teacher, grandparent, aunt. But they didn't just have those names. They were those things. Chris and I had been the same before. Now that she was different from me, was I different, too? And who was I without her being her? I didn't know which part of my life was a dream. The one the two of us symbiotically shared, or the one I was entering without her simply being my sister, and her being not just different now, but special. In my subconscious, I had a wordless but visceral perception a shift had occurred. 
mostly because the extra words Chris now had to describe her sounded unpleasant in the way some people said them. I thought about others in town with extra names. There was Wacky Pelasco, who biked around our neighborhood like a nursing home escapee, dressed in her nightgown, straw hat, and slippers. There was Edna Walker, who, because she walked everywhere, no matter how long the distance, became Walkin' Edna. There was Booksy, who whispered, Excuse me, to each book at the library as he moved it, because books, he knew, deserved respect. Was my sister like them? A mask I didn't know Chris possessed had now been removed, or perhaps put on. It wasn't only the addition of the words Down syndrome to my lexicon that introduced me to a largely undocumented, isolating rite of passage. It was also this. Though I was younger, I was taller than her by age three, and later I began to deviate from her psychologically, cognitively, and intellectually. There was no precise time when I became the clock's hands, growing into normal maturity, while she seemed more like a number on its face that I moved past. I began as the baby, and for a brief time I was still the youngest, and then we were equals, which I loved. And then she was the youngest, and I was the oldest. I worried that what had previously forged into our us could not survive. And while I continue to age and develop, in many areas, she is one age forever. Chris had no clue she was anything but Chris. She was naturally outgoing and friendly. Maybe this was because of her Down syndrome. Or maybe it was just her personality. In the circles we frequented, most everyone seemed to know my sister and pay her a lot of attention. Even when we left town for our grandparents' cottage, she retained her status because many people we knew owned or rented cottages nearby. When we were in unfamiliar company, reactions to my sister changed, and we had to contend with gawkers. It's hard for me to describe what prompted these stares, both because I don't want to reinforce the baseless idea that my sister is somehow less than or other than, and because most of the time I didn't experience them as differences until strangers seemed sidetracked by them. It was as though I'd been plunged into one of the pairs of pictures in a highlights magazine where you circle the parts that don't match. At the same time, I felt a fierce need to protect Chris. Kids were especially adept at this rubbernecking. They'd point and ask, What's wrong with her? Or we'd hear, Daddy, is that a girl or a boy? Or, Mommy, why does she talk funny? I felt very conflicted, because I learned that any confrontational reaction I wanted to unleash on her behalf, like yelling at them or stopping or sticking my tongue out, would only draw more attention to us. Chris's voice, deep, flat, and gravelly, 
as though she was always on the verge of laryngitis, was often hard for strangers to understand. So I translate for her, as if she were a visiting dignitary who didn't have the language. At restaurants, though, our mom would overcompensate, making Chris keep repeating her order until the waitress got it right, or just speaking for Chris, usually disagreeing with my sister's choices and changing them while she'd still be reciting it. My mother, never one to hide her light under a basket, might as well have been in an improv comedy troupe called Up Syndrome. It was her personal act of defiance to own strangers' stares and say to the world, if you're going to look at us, we'll give you a show. She spoke loudly with animation and exaggerated gestures. I didn't like when she did this. I was unsettled by her impromptu performances. Early on, I learned to adopt at least some of my mother's steeliness and stare right back at the gawkers, hoping to shame them. Even now, if people stare at my sister and me, my first thought is, what are you looking at? But I don't think Chris has ever been bothered by it. If she catches someone in the act, she'll just smile and wave. I have no idea what Chris sees when she looks at herself or me, or if she recognizes differences or similarities between us. As we've grown older, the disparities that stand out to me most aren't so much between each other, but between our childhood selves and who we are today. If she happens to be staying with my mom or me, I often watch her sleep. I love to kneel beside her bed and stare at her face to fix her in time. She looks so calm and beautiful. I wish I had her petite nose and not mine, which looks like Mr. Potato Head's when I smile. So I wistfully touch the tip of hers ever so slightly. If this wakes her, she immediately turns to me, grins, and says, What, sister? I say, Nothing, and grin back. When I stand to leave, she gives a little wave, and I give a little wave. Time stretches in reverse, and we are again those two little girls in the way back of our mom's darkened station wagon, singing with the radio following the moon with our eyes. So Nothing Special is a book about um, mainly two sisters being together, sort of coming apart, being together, coming apart, just like that ocean river. The process of writing the book is very similar to the process that the sisters go through in the story. Uh, and then there's other pieces of the story that might focus on uh, the narrator, which would be me, coming to grips with identity, coming to grips with a father's alcoholism, coming to grips with their own response to those things, both the disability and um, addiction through depression. And then, uh, but funny, like I like to say, <laughs> you like sort of dark and also 
slapsticky kind of humor stuff. If you like stories about siblings and families. Sorry, I have a cat. A cat just walked in and started okay. talking. <laughs> Hi, you're in the audio now. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think memoir is very, it's a very difficult genre. It's a very, and you, because you don't want to be too self-indulgent, you know, but this yeah. one's just so unique because it really is, it is about the relationships. You know, you're mm -hmm. not just talking about your life experiences, but you're doing it through relationship. Right. It's a coming of age memoir of a late bloomer. I mean, I am so flawed, you know, and I make so many mistakes and I keep holding on to things I shouldn't. And it's really that it's sort of like a, a memoir of my failures too, to, to be, you know, everything that uh, other people want me to be or what I think I should be and me really not coming up to that. And finally just either accepting it or letting it go, you know. This book was a huge accomplishment for me, just putting myself out there, just letting it kind of become its own thing and then putting it out in the world. Um, Facebook is where I'm usually posting new things and I think nothing special Facebook pages. There's tons of videos with me and Chrissy when we get together. I always put a little video up and that's a way for me to include her in the book really um, is to make these videos and then have us be connected and out in the world. And then they can see who she is um, and how we interact now that we're older. She's very funny. P I mean, people, people, they just really love her. You know, they really respond um, to her in the world. So it's great. That is great. Yeah. It's great that you make that available. Isn't that a great gift? An author with humility and humor who opens this window on her life and invites you in. I hope you visit the Nothing Special Facebook page and Diane's website to find the book. I'll put links in the show notes and on the Desideratum website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>